Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave Dad You're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council Tribalism sucks. Critical thinking is pretty cool. Thanks for being part of American Viewpoints with Mike Ferguson. There's a lot of confusion happening right now when it comes to the protest and when it comes to arrests and, and violence and what's peaceful and what's not and how do we hold police accountable and how do we hold protesters who break the law accountable and it can be really overwhelming. So let's focus on one of the proposed solutions that could help build bridges and bring peace back to our communities. I'm Mike Ferguson. Thanks for staying with us here on American Viewpoints. You've probably seen in the headlines the term qualified immunity and a whole lot of media people, people who do what I do, throwing it around like we're some kind of legal expert. Most of us are not, but I've got one with me right now. Daniel Voislaw from the Pacific Legal Foundation is uh, one of their constitutional attorneys. Daniel, thank you so much for the uh, time. And uh, is there a danger in us throwing around legal terms that actually have weight and not fully understanding what they actually mean? Well, I think there's there's certainly some danger in that. I think it's important to understand some of the foundational components of it uh, before we can really have an enlightened intellectual conversation about it. And so I think one of the most important things to understand about qualified immunity uh, is that it's not actually part of a written law. What it is, is it's an exception that courts have carved out from a law that holds officers, not just police officers, but really all state officials uh, liable for violating federal constitutional and statutory rights. And what it is, is it's a subset of sovereign immunity. And what sovereign immunity is, is it's a doctrine that says that the government has to give its own permission in order for it to be sued. And our co- our Congress, our nation did that when we ratified the, the Constitution, and especially the Bill of Rights that sets out certain protections against government action. It also did this during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War and the Civil Rights Act of 1871. And so when we're talking about qualified immunity, we're talking about whether whether police officers, whether prosecutors, whether public inspectors and state officials should be liable under this act that Congress passed in 1871 specifically to hold them liable. And then to look at how we're we're looking at this issue right now with all the protests and what happened with Derek Chauvin and George Floyd and and all the other cases that are in the headlines. So basically, you know, if I unjustly shoot and kill somebody, I can be criminally prosecuted. I can be sued by the family. But if a police officer does it, the common belief is he can be criminally prosecuted, but he's immune from a private lawsuit. Is that close to being accurate? Because that's a lot of people's understanding. <laughs> it's it, it's it's horseshoes close. Uh, so you're correct that there's no criminal immunity uh, for any state official, and that, that applies to the president as well. Uh, however, when it comes to qualified immunity, what it is, is it throws up an obstacle in the path of any kind of lawsuit against a state official. And what you have to prove in order to actually proceed to a trial and get your case heard is you have to prove that the officer deliberately violated a, quote, clearly established right. But the way that clearly established right, I mean, if you look at that 
test on its face, it seems, oh, okay, well, you know, you have the right to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures. And since shooting somebody is, is a seizure or a violation of due process, that's pretty clearly established right. But the way that clearly established rights has been defined by the courts is essentially the exact same set of facts has to have been decided before by, by a court, a higher court or the same court, and has to have found that there was a right that was violated. So to give you an example, there was, there was a case out of 2009, the Supreme Court decided called Safford Unified School District versus Redding. And in that case, uh, public school officials strip searched a nine-year-old school child uh, just on the mere suspicion that she might have had illegal drugs. They turned out to be prescription ibuprofen, by the way, or painkillers of, of some minor sort. But the schools, but the, but the court said that that right of a nine-year-old school child not to be strip searched by school officials was not clearly established. So that just gives you an idea of the fact-bound obstacle that this poses. So what that means to you know, for instance, uh, those who are calling for reforms in law enforcement and and wanting to crack down, uh, I, I guess what that means is, for instance, that case right now, now uh, would somebody would not be able to do that same thing to another child in school because it's already been addressed by the court. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, that's correct. But there's another part of this doctrine that is even more invidious because to understand the way judges decide decide cases, you, judges typically will only decide the legal issues that are necessary to dispense with the case in order to decide the ultimate issue in the case. And so a judge could, and they do in many instances, decide that a right is not clearly established and then not decide whether that right was actually violated. So they could toss the case out on qualified immunity without deciding whether this whether the officer's conduct violates the Fourth Amendment. So, for instance, in that case of the strip search, they could have said, well, it's not clearly established that you have a right against strip searches. Uh, we're not going to decide whether it's illegal. We're just going to toss the case on qualified immunity. And then the law remains unclear. So it's not just that the government gets one free bite at the apple. Theoretically, they could get infinite free bites at the apple. We're visiting with Daniel Weisslaw from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Okay, the Supreme Court uh, had a chance to hear a qualified immunity case or cases. They've decided not to. So does that mean that it is now up to all the states, if they want to make reforms, that it's going to have to be done state by state and maybe eventually somebody challenges it up? But is this now more of a local, at least by state based, I mean local uh, situation? Actually, qualified immunity is, is specifically a federal doctrine. So it applies to interpretation of the Civil Rights Act uh, for suing uh, under, under federal constitutional rights and, and, and statutory rights. And so that's where any sort of reform will have to be done in terms of amending the Civil Rights Act of 1871, which we now call Section 1983, for where it exists in the United States Code. Uh, so it's, it's, I think, fairly squarely within Congress's hands at the moment. And I think that's part of the reason that the court didn't want to take the case. We've seen the Roberts court repeatedly sure. sort of give deference to the Congress and want democratic process to sort things out. If they don't have to step in, they don't want to. So I think it's in Congress's hands at the moment. One of the things, whenever you're looking at a, a major public policy change, and there's so much call for reform with law enforcement, and there are things that, that, that I think clearly need to have at least conversations, if not big changes, but you always have to worry about unintended consequences. Is there an argument legally to be made for, well, wait a minute, if a police officer is worried about being sued, he might not step in and save a life, or you know, he might not engage uh, a criminal suspect, or worse yet, you know, he might end up or she might end up getting hurt or killed themselves because they're worried about constraints uh, that could happen in civil courts. 
So that's one of the most common uh, arguments against uh, getting rid of qualified immunity. However, when you look at it, it SCOTUS sort of created this doctrine in the 60s or 70s when that's when it sort of got a foothold when the court was sort of loosey-goosey on rewriting laws that Congress had written by sort of judicial uh, improvisation. Uh, It wasn't really until the 80s and 90s when Scalia came to the court that textualism and interpreting the words of the statute started to gain currency. But during the 60s and 70s, specifically when this doctrine was, was adopted, there was there were fairly relatively low pleading standards. Uh, today, the federal pleading standards are substantially higher. And what a pleading standard is is you have to specifically state what right of yours was violated when you file a lawsuit. If you've if you've written a fl- frivolous lawsuit, that case is going to be kicked. You don't need qualified immunity actually to get rid of frivolous lawsuits. And so the only thing that qualified immunity is doing at this point is actually weeding out potentially meritorious claims, claims that could could go forward and that do assert assert uh, rights uh, that are not frivolous. Okay. Now uh, you've done a lot of writing on this legal journals, but also on, uh, you can find your, your thoughts and your research and, and things like that on your website and social media pages, correct? That's correct. Yeah. If you want to learn more about this issue, you can go to pacificlegal.org. We have uh, blog posts and other resources related to this topic that I think are quite informative. And, uh, you know, in the last 30 seconds or so we've got, it's, it's one of those things where we need to know how to talk about it, but also we need to know to whom to talk about. And it sounds like call your congressperson, not your state representative. That's, that's what I'd implore. All right, Daniel, thanks so much for the insight. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Let's talk about your health and maybe talk about your job as well. Are all these headlines that we're seeing about a second wave of coronavirus infections that are going to spread across the country something that should scare us or something that we should meet with some skepticism? We're going to discuss that. The doctor is in here in just about four minutes. And don't forget to check out the American Viewpoints social media accounts. I'd love to connect with you on Twitter. At AVP Radio is the Twitter account there. And on Facebook, just look up American Viewpoints with Mike Ferguson. We've got more discussions coming your way, including an assessment of the Supreme Court's landmark ruling that was handed down this week. It's all ahead right here on American Viewpoints. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy. Your football buddy. Or you, your best man. Your worst man. You, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Prediabetes. 